Okay, how the fuck are you people? Uh, we've been doing kind of okay here. Uh, still getting used to not working, which is a very strange headspace, but it is quite a comforting one. My resting heart rate is down 10 beats a minute since I stopped working, so you might want to consider that. Hook up with somebody, Rich. Get um, unemployed as fast as you can. It's probably good for your health. Been getting more sleep, which is always a lovely thing. And uh, Sal and I did something weird this week, a little bit weird. Anyway, um, one of our favourite console games to play is Destiny. And Destiny 2 has just launched. So we went to the midnight launch for a console computer game uh, the other night. Uh, it was really weird. We got in there. We got the toys that we get for booking early to buy, purchase this game. Uh, we got a couple of... Uh, they gave us, a, gave us away a few things. One of which was so, so kind of a branded soft drink in a bottle, which was kind of good. It was branded with Destiny 2 on it in the picture. And some M&Ms in little branded bags. There was a trivia quiz, which we didn't win. A raffle, which we didn't win. But there were a few other people that are kind of game fans, so we went there, and they weren't the normal people. You don't, they weren't pimply teenagers, which is kind of interesting. There was a Muslim woman with a headscarf who games madly. She's 30 years old, took a friend along with for moral support, and was there gaming. You know, she's a game fiend. So you can't stereotype the people who play computer games. And Destiny 2, I like. Uh, we've been playing it all week, basically. That's why I haven't watched many movies, to be honest with you. Um, very immersive world, particularly on the really enormous 55-inch uh, TV screen, which I've had installed, the 4K one. It's mind-blowingly um, immersive. So I've been killing lots of aliens and having a bit of fun with that and just chilling out and uh, enjoying things. And Sal has as well. She's got her own copy of it and her own console. So she's been doing it and we've been exchanging um, tips and hints and, hey, have you seen this kind of stuff with it? Uh, it's really an interesting phenomenon, uh, the how immersive computer games have got, particularly first-person shooters. They're storytelling in a different way, and that um, is kind of interesting. It's audio-visual story storytelling, like movies are, and yet you get to control the action within certain defined parameters. So I think there's going to be more and more of this. And the budget on this thing was like $200 million, and it took two and a half years to develop. So it's up there with movies, and um, it's going to make about a billion dollars. So the money is definitely there. There's a lot of merch around uh, for Destiny 2, including pop vinyl figures and T-shirts and keyrings and wallets and um, socks and watches and all sorts of things like that. So while I have been watching movies and enjoying movies, and uh, doing that side of things, I've also been gaming a lot uh, in my copious spare time. Though I have done a few things around the house, which is good. The man cave is still um, a mess. It looks like somebody's ransacked it, but then it has for the last year and a half. But on the agenda is definitely um, a revamp of the man cave. And I will do um, a bit of a tour on Facebook, maybe even on YouTube, of the re um, rejigged man cave at some stage. Speaking of YouTube, I also put up a YouTube video, which was a lot of fun to do. Um, I'm avoiding the copyright issues because you get copyright trolls coming in. And even if you're using parts from the trailer, they say, oh, well, you can't use that. Um, someone's put up a um, copyright infringement notice. Uh, I got one from a French company or something like that at one stage for an unrelated property. So it becomes a hassle to manage that stuff. So I did this YouTube video using still images. So if you go into YouTube and um, type in in the search, 
cool vampire films from other cultures. You'll see my 10-minute effort there, which um, I'm, I'm kind of proud of. I, there are little bits I'd tweak. I haven't actually done one for a few months. So there were a couple of tweaks and a couple of bits where the titles cut off quickly into images. And what I want to do is do more fade out on those things and uh, make it a little less abrupt there. I also want to improve the um, quality of my narration because I use AutoCue software and I'm not really familiar with it. And it's not something that I've um, had a lot of experience with. But, you know, as, as I go along, I'll get better at it. And I do want to do more and more of this kind of um, thing as an adjunct to the podcast. So not as a replacement for, but definitely as an adjunct to the podcast. So that one took me a, a few days. I'm actually doing another one soon, which is about nostalgia from my childhood and a lot of images of nostalgia. It's going to be very Sydney specific, but there are going to be things that are accessible to people in other areas. And uh, yeah, it should be a lot of fun. So what have I actually been watching? Uh, as part of the research for that YouTube video I just mentioned, I saw a Filipino movie about Filipino vampires. They're called Aswang, and they're quite the shapeshifters. It kind of crosses between ghouls, vampires, and witches. And this movie was called Tick, Tick, the Aswan Chronicles. Now, I've actually got a copy of this. I picked it up quite cheaply on eBay. And it's the first movie in the Philippines that was done entirely on a green screen set. It's a lot of fun. Uh, the CG on the monsters when they totally go non-human is a little bit um, bare bones. But again, it's from a fairly low budget movie from a culture where they don't have the resources that uh, Hollywood has. Yeah, they don't have uh, resources to animal logic or wetter workshop or industrial light and magic. And so it was all done uh, in the nation. It, it generated a sequel as well, oddly enough, which I haven't been able to find. But uh, if you want to look at Tick Tick, the S1 Chronicles, it is on YouTube, which is where I first saw it before I purchased it. But it was a little bit of fun. Uh, another thing I've watched, and probably the only other thing I really want to mention that I watched, was... Uh, the 1979-1980 uh, addition to the Incredible Hulk TV series, a TV movie called The Trial of the Incredible Hulk, which actually features another Marvel character in it, as well as Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrino. And that is Matt Murdock, a.k.a. Um, Daredevil. He turns up in there, and it's not a bad little TV movie. It's of its time. The special effects are mostly um, physical effects, no CG or anything like that. It predates that kind of thing. But, yeah, it's kind of, um, it's not too bad. It's a bit nostalgic. I'm not an incredibly big fan of the Incredible Hulk TV series. I thought it was a bit naff in some ways. But uh, when I was in a town called Denali, we looked through a junk shop and there was a copy of it for two bucks. It's in good condition. The disc was in good condition. So I picked it up and uh, watched it. And, yeah, it wasn't a waste of time at all. So if you're a fan of that kind of thing, I think The Trial of the Incredible Hulk is also on YouTube, as pretty much a lot of things are. If you um, want to do a search for old 1950s and 1960s B-grade science fiction and horror films, there are a shit ton of them there. But um, because I've got YouTube available to me on the TV screen natively now, it's because it's a smart TV, I'm watching more and more kind of little clips of things and going, okay, well, I'm going to save that to watch later. And so there are a number of 1950s science fiction horror films I've got lined up on YouTube to stream when I get around to it. I may also do some of them for Martian Driving Podcast. Who knows? It's a mystery. So it's time for a break now. I'm going to get back 
going to talk about a crazy successful movie uh, action film from 1977 and it's the deep starring Jacqueline Bessette, Nick Naughty, Robert Shaw, Lewis Gossett and Eli Wallach. From the number one bestseller by the author of Jaws, this is The Deep. It begins in Bermuda with the adventure and romance of an island vacation, a fantastic opportunity for two young lovers to get away from it all. Was it beginner's luck to discover a sunken wreck in less than 60 feet of water? Where'd you get this exactly? Was it coincidence that there were two treasures, one of priceless jewels, the other more valuable than that? You must be the young couple who found that bottle this afternoon. Certainly didn't look like anything. We didn't find any bottle. The danger and excitement of treasure worth killing for. Ah! The adventure and intrigue of a secret worth dying for. If his tongue moves again, cut it. Go upstairs, pack, and go home. I'm going down there. And you're going to have to blow me up, too. As you please, boy. And beneath it all is the terror of the deep. Robert Shaw. I'm going to signal you when I'm going to fire this fuse. Now, after that, I don't care if you found the Holy Grail itself. You've only got three minutes. Jacqueline Bissett. Oh, my God. Nick Nolte. Come on, Trace. All right, Trace, what the hell's going on? Louis Gossett. You forced me to take what you would not let me pay for. And Eli Wallach. 98,000 ampules. David, it's morphine. Morphine. From the same director who gave us the Cliff Richard musical Summer Holiday, we have The Deep from 1977. That director is Peter Yates, who, as I said, gave us Summer Holiday. But he kind of went between action projects and quieter character pieces. He kind of was a little bit two ways in his directing career. Uh, He started out, as, as I said, with Summer Holiday. He did Robbery in 1967 with Stanley Baker in it, which is excellent. He did some episodes of TV series like Danger Man, also known as Secret Agent Man, and The Saint. So he kind of learned how to shoot fast and um, furious, in a sense. And then he really broke a big with Bullet in 1968. Then he did John and Mary, which was a character piece, which I think, if I recall correctly, starred Dustin Hoffman and uh, Mia Farrow. Yep, it did. There we go. How good is that? Then he did Murphy's War in 1971 with Peter O'Toole, which I picked up a copy of very cheaply on DVD. I think I paid five bucks for it in a second-hand place the other day, so I've really got to re-watch Murphy's War. 
then The Hot Rock, uh, and then Friends of Eddie Coyle with Robert Mitchum, one of Mitchum's best later films. And then a comedy called For Pete's Sake, which I think had Michael Sarazen and um, Barbara Streisand in it, Mother Jugs and Speed, which had Bill Cosby and Raquel Welsh, which is an old combination, then The Deep, which is next, and then a 1979 movie with Dennis Christopher called Breaking Away, which is really good. Uh, Eyewitness with Sigourney Weaver and um, I think William Hurt. Let's see how good my memory is on it. Yeah, what do you know? <laughs> I'm right on this stuff. Uh, then Kroll, which a lot of people like, but I never really liked in 1983. The Dresser with Albert Finney and Tom Courtney in 1983 as well. And then his career petered out. He did The Year of the Comet. And in 2000, he did a musical TV version of Don Quixote starring John Lithgow, which was a bit odd. And he died in 2011. But, you know, he, he was very much, um, you know, stylistically he could do both, but he never did both well in one film. And that's one of the weaknesses of The Deep, even though it was crazy successful. Some of the character bits are a little less successful. But it still manages to be a vulgar pleasure for me, and I really like it for a number of reasons. Uh, came out 18 months after the book was published, the book by Peter Benchley, who also wrote the novel upon which Jaws was based, so he was hot property at that stage, very much so. Um, Peter Guba, the producer, um, bought the book for $500,000, bought the rights to the book for $500,000 based on the galley proofs, and immediately went into production for Columbia Pictures with the film. The story kind of led itself to film very much so. It's about a vacationing couple in Bermuda, David and Gail, who are fairly wealthy because you don't holiday in Bermuda unless you are, who go skin diving on some wrecks around the um, islands and find um, some ampules of amber-coloured liquid and a medallion bearing the image of a woman and the letters S-C-O-P-N, meaning Santa Clara Ora Proba Novus, or Santa Clara Play For Me. Pray For Me, sorry. Play For Me. Pray For Me. Uh, they take it to a treasure hunter in Bermuda, a guy with the really cool name and very Cornish name of Roma Treese, played by Robert Shaw, who uh, ends up helping them and they go diving back down. Shaw and his uh, old friend Adam Coffin, played by Eli Wallach, identify the ampule as morphine from a hospital ship that sank during the war, and Adam Coffin was the only survivor of that um, ship. The ship also had um, a whole bunch of munitions on it, so maybe it wasn't a um, hospital ship. It was a, a, conv- you know, a um, transport ship for the war effort. And they find out that there are a lot of uh, morphine ampules in the ship. Uh, they were contacted by a guy called Cloche, played by Lou Gossett, who wants to get the drugs off them for reasons that are fairly obvious to anybody who's watched any 1970 cinema. So while David and Gail and Romatrice are diving for the treasure and to get the ampules out of there so that um, the heroin that you can make from the morphine, ampu- morphine ampules, morphine, morphine ampules, ampules, which is hard to say at this time of night, um, they want, you know, they obviously don't want the heroin on the streets, so they're planning to destroy the morphine while Cloche is kind of sniffing around the alcoholic Adam Coffin 
to try to get details on where those ampules may be hidden. And, of course, adventure occurs. Um, I like this movie for a few reasons. The most obvious one, and we've got to get out of the way fast, is the wet T-shirt scuba diving scene with Jackie Bissett, which was one of those kind of iconic, sexy scenes from 1970s cinema. And 1970s cinema was replete with sexy scenes, if you've ever watched any of it. Yes, and Jacqueline Bissett had very nice breasts at that stage. I'm not sure what they're like these days, but they were quite nice then. And it had that combination of a holiday in the tropics, scuba diving, adventure and sexiness, which was a very neat package for a movie to have at that stage, or indeed at any subsequent stage in cinema history. But uh, So you've got that part there. But you've also got the fact that it's a Peter Benchley property, and because Jaws was so crazy successful... Um, it was very much something that people wanted to see and uh, they were getting out there. So on a nine million, the budget was $9 million, which was not insubstantial at the time. It ended up making $47.3 million, which is definitely um, enough to get your bait back. And again, we have Robert Shaw playing the crusty, knowledgeable guy, older guy who helps out the young people in what they're trying to do. It's a very much a different role from, uh, than Quint in Jaws because Roma Trees is a lot cannier. Uh, Quint's kind of brusque and um, abrasive and basically kills sharks because of his own tortured history. But Trees is a knowledgeable man. He's a scholar. He's an adventurer. He's a um, amateur scientist in some ways, and he definitely knows his way around explosives. And he's a man of action, along with uh, a friend of his called Kev, played by a really interesting actor called Robert Tessier, who usually shaved his head for roles. He was an ex-Marine, a really big, hunky guy. He's an actor and stuntman. Died in 1990 very early, unfortunately. But uh, he was also an accomplished cabinet maker, and he made pieces for his co-stars at times. He was in a whole bunch of things. Uh, mostly B-grade pictures, but um, I really like Robert Tissier. He's got a certain presence. He's got that kind of stoic presence you get from somebody like Woody Strode, a, a guy who's conditioned and has been through stuff and, and has that kind of worldly knowledge. And in fact, Robert Tessier gets one of the most um, tense action scenes in this film with a guy called Earl Maynard, who was a bodybuilder and actor. Um, and that involved, amongst other things, an outboard motor used as a weapon on land. And that kind of really works well as an action scene. Uh, both of the participants are good stump people and uh yeah it's just, that's one of the standout bits for me is that little action scene which doesn't have any of the stars in it but really ramps up the tension now there is a, a sexual threat to um jackie bissett's gale in this movie where a haitian voodoo ritual is um conducted on her body with chicken feet and blood and things like that by the bad guys but uh there's an interesting and, and slightly disconcerting shift of pace there um it's supposed to be an action film and she's kind of all broken up and curled up in the bed when um david finds her and has a cuddle but the next thing we see her she's determined to get everything out of the way get the treasure get the morphine there's no kind of transition scene of her getting a ship back together in a sense it's um it's a really weird moment in the film which mostly because it's a blokey action film to a certain extent. Really, there, there's a scene there you need with her kind of getting herself back together 
and giving her character agency and also the kind of uh, a moment of reflection where she goes, okay, these people have stripped off my clothing and smeared chicken blood on me. I'm not going to let them win. You don't get that moment, and I really miss that. That would have been really nice. But she does get to stab somebody in the um, guts with a hook. So there is that. Nonetheless, I I like that about the film. I like the undersea um, filming parts. Everybody in the film went under the water. The actors had to learn how to scuba dive. The director did. Camera people, all of that. There's a lot of this film that takes place underwater. Some of it in a tank that was made in Bermuda by the um, by the production, where they bored a giant hole in some in a limestone uh, plateau and filled it with water and placed the water regularly, so that they could uh, film some underwater scenes without the hazards and the um, changeability of the weather in the open ocean. Some of it was seen was filmed in the open ocean, but some of it was on an underwater set on location. But it works really well. The scuba stuff works well. Uh, you see the actors doing a lot. Not all of the stunts were done by the actors underwater. But enough of them were that it gives you a kind of sense that the actors are actually there, which is important. You don't want the actors to do all their own stunts because you end up with shit like Tom Cruise in his latest movie breaking his ankle and holding up production for months because of his, basically because of his ego. So they didn't go to that extent. But there's a lot of um, good underwater footage there. At times, slightly reminiscent of Thunderball, but taking it further. There's even a mechanical fish, along with the jaw. There's another Jaws parallel there with a mechanical fish. In this quite, this case, it's not um, a shark or anything like that. It's a moray eel, which is um, even nastier than a shark in some ways because it comes up out of holes and grabs you. And that makes it even scarier. And the moray eel scenes uh, do have a nice tension to them which is enhanced by the soundtrack, which is by the late, great John Barry. I really like the John Barry soundtrack in this one. It uh, does have, because of Barry's orchestrations, it does have a little bit of James Bondian kind of sound about it, in a sense. But they also made it more contemporary by including um, calypso music and disco music. In fact, there's a track on the soundtrack, which I had on vinyl and actually still have a copy of on vinyl. I also have it on a more protean medium, in this case, in MP3. But I do play the um, deep soundtrack at times, particularly the Donna Summer track, um, Down Deep Inside, which I'm going to play at the end of the podcast because I really like it. There was good disco. Don't let anyone tell you there wasn't good disco, because there was. There wasn't much good disco music. But there was some good disco music. Um, no kind of, no real type of music is all bad. Uh, well, you know, you can make exceptions for particular artists, but as genres go, even dubstep, there's some good dubstep out there. Again, like disco, not a lot of it, but there is some good music out there of that type but that's more um love that album podcast than paleo cinema so i'll get back on track except to say again it's one of my favorite soundtrack albums of the 1970s and it's one i keep going back to and kind of like there's a big orchestral suite on the soundtrack as well soundtrack as well i said soundtracked then for some reason but it's soundtrack which um one side of one of the double albums is a kind of meditative um, almost new agey kind of bit by John Barry where he made an orchestral suite from the soundtrack and it's good background music it, um, it's not elevator music particularly but it's good to have on the background while you're doing other things and just kind of going with the flow 
literally, because it's set underwater. So to the actors, uh, Jacqueline Bissett, as I said, has that moment of abrupt transition, which kind of really doesn't work. This was Nick Nolte's breakout role as well. He'd done TV series like Rich Man, Poor Man and a few other things. But this is the one that made him as big a star as he ever became, uh, though... I think his career may have been impeded by the fact that he was very, very fond of things that were fermented. Nonetheless, in this one, he's kind of effective. He's got the moustache and the sandy hair going for him. But he doesn't have the presence of an A-list star. I don't think he ever had. Um, good char- He ended up being a reasonable character actor, but I don't think starring roles were particularly his kind of thing. And... Uh, even though he is kind of effective in this, he's not. He has a lot of shade thrown on him by Robert Shaw, whose Roma Trees is the lead character in a lot of ways. I really like him in this. He's got that way of kind of squinting when he looks at people that is very effective. And also, uh, Shaw had a lot of gravitas. Again, he was somebody who was incredibly fond of alcohol and died at a crazy early age of a heart attack um, while driving home from a pub in Ireland where he lived. Um, it's a real shame there are so many actors and and Bruce Lee being another one of course there are so many actors that died way before we got to see them in some other roles and I think Robert Shaw is definitely there I mean he came to prominence in of course playing Red Grant in From Russia With Love and in a number of other movies even like the movie he did called Swashbuckler which is a silly pirate film he was a bit of fun in that but in this and in Jaws he really brought distinctive character roles to the forefront of the movies they were in um quint was in a sense the um the core of jaws apart from um chief brody because roy scheider and him um you know i think there's a good trio in that film you got roy scheider you got uh, richard dreyfus and you got robert shaw all playing off each other in a circle it's kind of like sharks circling each other character actors trying to outact each other but in this movie um because of the dynamic of having a couple and the roma trees character you don't have that same dynamic in that same engine running the um the plot and making it that a special movie in the same way that jaws was and that of course comes back to peter benchley nonetheless it um it's not as strong in the character department as jaws was but i like it I've never been scuba diving myself. I have snorkeled um, on coral reefs off the coast of Western Australia. Um, I had a place called Rottnest Island on the west coast of that. There's some um, temperate coral reefs there, and swimming among the fishes on those reefs was a lot of fun. Um, I'm nearsighted, so it makes it a little more difficult to see things well. Though I do believe you can get prescription um, snorkel masks, but um, I don't particularly want to go there for something i'd only very rarely do but uh nonetheless i i do understand the pleasure of swimming around reefs and looking at the fish it's it is and this is a cliche of course it is another world and it's one that is evoked very evocatively in the deep and it makes you want to go and uh put on a mask put on some swim fins and go and hit some lush tropical waters while they're still around Uh, As you may know, the Great Barrier Reef is in dire peril because of global warming at the moment. So if I'm ever going to do that, it's probably going to have to be sooner rather than later. Nonetheless, um, in a sense, the deep sells us a fantasy. Finding treasure, so there's money involved there. 
Tropical Waters, a beautiful woman, um, adventure, interesting history, which is another aspect of it, and uh, very great peril from greedy bastards. And we're all in peril from greedy bastards in some way or another, aren't we? But uh, just to kind of wind up on the deep, it's worth revisiting if you've seen. Uh, I've just had a look, and it is on the Tube of Views. If you can't find a decent copy of it, let me just check to see the quality of it on YouTube while I have you here, because it's always interesting just sitting there doing what you're doing or standing there or running or walking there and hearing somebody tap on a keyboard. Come here, you bastard. Okay, backspace, go. Let's have a look and see what the quality is for the version of The Deep that is on YouTube. And uh, let's have a look here. And the answer to that question is really shit. So I wouldn't even bother. Nonetheless, um, see if you can find a copy. I know that in Australia, you can pick it up on Blu-ray very cheaply because I did it myself at JB Hi-Fi the other week. Uh, and I'm saying I'm a lot. I don't know why. I'm probably thinking of the next thing to say, but I'm sorry I'm saying I'm a lot this time around. It is getting late at night. And I find I'm better at podcasting in the morning. I've really got to get my shit together more. Stop playing console games and give people what they want, which, as we know, is money, a lack of global warming, somebody else's US president, and somebody to calm the fuck down in North Korea. But I can't really do that. So, what I'll give you instead is movies. So, I'm going to take a break now again. And when I get back, we're going to look at the second of the three big Bruce Lee action films after The Big Boss and before Enter the Dragon. And it is the 1972 Hong Kong wuxia movie, Fist of Fury. I'm not sure whose idea it was to incorporate also Sprock Zarathustra into a Bruce Lee movie trailer, but here's the Merovacs who have the rights to the movie, their trailer for the 1972 martial arts film, Fist of Fury. He's unstoppable, unbeatable. Unbelievable. He's Bruce Lee, the master of karate, kung fu, delivering that Chinese connection. Bruce Lee, the oriental superstar who exploded across the screens of America in the phenomenally successful Fists of Fury, is back to defend the honor of his nation and the love of his woman. Using his furious fists and superhuman strength, he breaks them up, smashes them down, and kicks them apart. King delivers the death blow of 
the Chinese connection. I was into Kung Fu movies way before it was popular, before Bruce Lee died, and in Australia at least, Kung Fu movies didn't get really big until Enter the Dragon came out posthumously for Bruce Lee in 1975. But um, I remember me and some friends of mine were seeing these movies before that. Um, we, of course, once upon a time, there used to be a Chinese cinema in Liverpool Street in Sydney, which was just around the corner from all the big cinemas that were on George Street. And if you wanted to see a Hong Kong action film of any kind, you had to go to this cinema, which is very strange because the guy who sold the tickets didn't speak English, couldn't tell you whether there were English subtitles in the movies, and you just paid the money because the price was up on the thing. The guy nodded at you and kept smoking his cigarette because in those days people smoked, at least in the lobbies of cinemas. And you'd go into this um, flea pit, and watch the action film. Now, one of the problems we had at the time watching Hong Kong action films was the subtitles were in white, superimposed on the bottom half of the screen. So if there was a white background, you didn't know what the fuck anybody was saying. And there's a, for some reason, the ones I saw, there was a lot of white on them, and you go, okay, well, I'm going to try to guess here. And you kind of extrapolated from what had happened before and what happened afterwards, what happened in the bit you couldn't really read the subtitles on. So we saw these movies and really enjoyed them. And when Bruce Lee really broke big, I think with Way of the Dragon, which is one I didn't mention earlier, the one that um, shows that Bruce Lee was tougher than Chuck Norris in spite of what any internet meme says. Way of the Dragon was one where he beats Chuck Norris to death in the Roman Colosseum for no good reason. Um, it's set in the Roman Colosseum for no good reason. Beating Chuck Norris to death is really cool. There's a scene where Bruce Lee grabs a fistful of Chuck Norris's chest hair and pulls it off and then blows it off his fingers. Very casual. And Chuck Norris, showing the charisma he's known for, is as stiff as a board in this movie. Apart from the Kung Fu stuff, which he always did well. Chuck Norris is never going to be known for for being a nuanced actor. And these days, with the amount of plastic surgery he's had, he's got pig eyes and and right-wing opinions. So he's never going to play well to me. Never was that fond of him. Never watched Walker, Texas Ranger, even though Rod Taylor appeared in an episode of it. But um, in this one, we don't get very many Westerners at all. In fact, there's only one uh, really prominent Occidental character in the whole movie. And that is um, a character called Petrov, played by a guy called Robert Baker, who's a pretty good martial artist himself. But he has a permed white, permed blonde hair and a really bad moustache, which always makes us hate him, of course. The story of the film, if you didn't get it from the trailer, um, it's in the early part of the 20th century in Shanghai, a guy called Chen Zan, played by Bruce Lee, returns to the Jingwu Martial Arts School to marry his fiancée played by Nora Miao. However, um, he gets there and finds out that his Sifu, his teacher, um, Huo Huanjia, has died apparently of an illness. Chen gets crazy with grief. He throws himself on the coffin in the grave and starts clawing at the top of the coffin until someone hits him on the head with a shovel. He's obviously a man on the edge and he's got very poor impulse control, which is kind of weird given the fact that he's such a kick-ass martial artist. In some scenes, they call him number five apprentice. But uh, there's no way that Bruce Lee is number one. 
during the funeral, um, some guys from a Japanese dojo in the Hongku district arrive and taunt the Jingwu students. A guy called Wu En, who's a translator and advisor for the Japanese dojo's grandmaster, Hiroshi Suzuki, taunts Chen by slapping him on the cheek several times and dares him to fight one of Suzuki's apprentices. I'm paraphrasing some of this stuff from Wikipedia. Um, they present the sign to the Jingwu school bearing the words Sick Man of East Asia to insult the master and describe all the Chinese as weaklings in comparison to the Japanese who at the time um, basically conquered Shanghai. There's also a scene at a park where there's a garden in the park and there's a sign outside saying no dogs or Chinese which was something that was done and various um, colonial enclaves in China at various times, and it's very much a trigger point for Chinese nationalism in a lot of ways. Uh, the people who exploited China for many, many years were assholes, basically. So, of course, what happens is that uh, Chen goes to the uh, Japanese martial arts school wipes the floor with the guys. The boss isn't there. Mr. Suzuki's not there. Hiroshi Suzuki isn't there, but he mops the floor with all the students. And that's where we first see Bruce Lee unleashed. Uh, we probably need to talk about Bruce Lee in martial arts a little bit because he there's never been anybody with his presence as a martial artist. There have been people who came close. I'm not thinking of Jackie Chan, who's a great entertainer, but I don't think he's necessarily a great martial artist. But I'm thinking more of people like Tony Jaa and Nico Uwe's from The Raid. Those guys have really got it and really know what they're doing. And I like them a lot more than I do Jackie Chan. I'm dissing martial artists. I'm dissing Chuck Norris. I'm dissing Jackie Chan. I think Jackie Chan's a good comedic actor. But um, I never re- he never really grabbed me as a martial artist. But uh, Bruce Lee is something else. And one of the interesting things he does in Fists of Fury is... I'm not sure, it's Fist of Fury, I've got to keep saying, not Fists, Fist of Fury, singular. One of the things he does is his philosophy of martial arts is demonstrated in Fist of Fury. The fact that um, he's, his whole style, Jeet Kundo, which I actually trained in for a couple of months back in the 70s until they really wore me down, asking me to do push-ups on my knuckles on concrete, which I did, but it really hurt. But I did learn meditation, which is never a bad thing. There are a few revolutionary things that um, Jeet Kune Do and Bruce Lee brought to us. His whole idea was conditioning was everything. You've got to be in great shape, even though you may know the forms and things like that. You've got to be in terrific shape to be a martial artist. That was one of the things he emphasized. Conditioning, training, weight training, all that kind of stuff, which wasn't traditionally a part of most martial arts, he really thought were important. Um... The other thing was things like not telegraphing your moves. Make sure that you kind of explode outwards, but don't shift your footing. Don't tell people what you're going to do by the way you position your body before you do it. And there's a scene in this movie where he looks at the feet of the other guy. The guy shuffles his feet slightly, and Bruce Lee's character, Chen, knows exactly what that guy's going to do. But if you watch Lee himself, his action comes from, you know, he's in a kind of... um, horse stance, sideways horse stance, but he never telegraphs any move he's going to make. You don't know how he's going to react and where because he's trained his body not to telegraph the moves. 
and that's one of the things that takes him out of the ordinary in as a martial artist and as a cinematic martial artist. There are some stories, too, of Bruce Lee needing to slow down what he does because the camera couldn't capture it, uh, particularly in Enter the Dragon, which I've talked about on a previous paleo cinema. But in this movie, more than that movie, you really see the qualities that Bruce Lee brought as a martial artist. And the interesting thing was um, his acting as a martial artist. There are bits where he's cocky and brash. There are bits where he's angry, and he did that kind of sad, angry face that Bruce Lee does when he kills somebody. Uh, When he beats somebody to death, he's kind of full of anger but full of sadness at the same time. It's a really interesting facial expression to um, see on an actor, but Bruce Lee does it a couple of times in this. He does it also when... Um, I think, who was it he fought in Enter the Dragon? I'll just find out. I think it was Robert Wall, or either him or Bolo Jung. But there's a bit where he jumps on the guy, and you can see his facial expression. You've got the angry sadness kind of facial expression that Bruce Lee bought. But the interesting thing is that his style of martial arts is incredibly cinematic. Um, you Rather than the way that a lot of martial arts is shot, these days with lots of um, cutting, quick cutting and close-ups. With Bruce Lee's martial arts movies, you get medium and long shots mostly, apart from the kind of facial expressions close-ups where you see the fear in the other guy's eyes or the calculation in the other guy's eyes and you see the determination or the cockiness in Bruce Lee's face. Apart from that, the action itself is always in the long shot, so you know exactly what's happening, to whom, how it's happening, what the reactions are. Um, it's, it doesn't cheat the way that some modern action films do, where you see the punches and the flurries, but there's, they're all in kind of medium close-up. And it gives you less of a sense of the flow of the action in a, in a particular scene. And I kind of miss that, because I really like the way um, Lo Wei, who was the director of this film, directs martial arts scenes. He did a couple of other films. He actually did The Big Boss with Bruce Lee as well and um, went on to do a number of movies with Jackie Chan. And uh, he was an actor as well, but he uh, he did The Killer Meteors in 76, Snake and Crane Arts of Shaolin, Spiritual Kung Fu in 78, Man Called Tiger in 73, and um, a movie in 1974 called Naughty Naughty. I'm going to click on that just to see. A Cantonese action comedy starring... Um, Sam Hui as a young con man. So he didn't only do um, wuxia movies, he actually did some other films. It's got Norton Miao in it as well. I wonder if I could find a copy of that. Again, it was produced by the same company that uh, produced uh, Bruce Lee's Hong Kong films, Golden Harvest, which uh, I really, every time I... It's now called Go- Orange Guy Golden Harvest, the company. It's gone through an iteration there, uh, founded in 1970 by Raymond Chow, Leonard Ho and Lung Fung. But when I was watching uh, Kung Fu movies obsessively, along with other genres, in the 70s, Golden Harvest was always a a good product. When you saw the Golden Harvest logo come up, you knew you were in for a good action film. Uh, I saw things like uh, Five Fingers of Death. I saw uh, Master of the Flying Guillotine, all of those ones. And of course, I saw their Australian film, the Man from Hong Kong, directed by Brian Trensich Smith. So um, all of those ones I, I really kind of got into and, and grokked in fullness. 
but as the kung fu craze, as it was called in those days, faded out, you saw less and less of them in the cinema, and this was still before VHS and um, video tapes were available. So for a period there, it was very hard to access Hong Kong action films in any way because the cinemas just stopped showing them. They moved on to other things. They were doing softcore porn comedies in some cinemas just to keep the cinemas going. But I really missed Hong Kong action films. And um, I did kind of move on to some of the stuff that um, people like Roger Corman was putting out at that stage. But it wasn't the same. Having There was a combination for me in these films of the strangeness of a foreign culture and the best place to see a Hong Kong action film is in Chinatown because you're already in the environment. It's almost like part of the cinema's world is the place you're in when you go to the cinema. One of the things I used to do is I'd go and... Um, I was actually living very poorly at this stage. I spent all of my money on books and movies. So when my unemployment check came in, the first thing I'd do is I'd go to Chinatown in Sydney, usually dodging the ticket inspectors to get the 30 kilometres from where I lived into the city CBD. And I'd go to a Chinese grocery store and stock up on um, really cheap Chinese noodles because at that stage a packet of ramen with really nice flavourings in them was about 10 or 20 cents a packet. So I could buy a few dollars worth and end up with like enormous shopping bags full of noodles, go to see a, a Hong Kong action film and be able to feed myself for the next week and a half at least. And then I'd go and buy a couple of bags of oranges, which were cheap at the, that time as well, and um, live on oranges and ramen for a fortnight with occasional bits of meat if I could find somebody to let me go to their place for a meal. So um, I've got really fond memories of it. And one of the weird things about being incredibly poor is over time, and in, if you let it, and if you kind of don't hold on to the humiliation and, and the ugliness and, and the jealousy and the um, really negative emotions of it, you can get nostalgic about times like that. I still like to get go into Chinese supermarkets and buy ramen and other interesting things. Sometimes I don't know what the fuck they are, I'll be honest with you. Or buy things and taste things in Chinese supermarkets that aren't labelled in English. And I'll um, eat them because I want to try new things. And part of that for me, and I've always been like that for as long as I can remember, and part of that for me was going to see Hong Kong action films in the 1970s. And now I've got a whole bunch of them in my collection. In fact, just today, I was down at JB Hi-Fi and picked up a box set of all of the Lone Wolf and Cub movies, which again isn't Chinese, it's Japanese. But I got them really cheaply. They were on special, and I was quite happy with that. So those kind of movies are still part of the stuff I love in cinema. Yeah, I can go and watch a Jacques Demi musical, a Hollywood musical, a film noir, a character piece from Sweden, Smiles on a Summer Night by Igmar Bergman, which I think I've done in the previous podcast. But I can come back to loves of the past. It's, it's kind of like being nostalgic for old girlfriends who... You end it badly with. Yeah, you can do it now and then, but you don't want to do it all the time. But for me, there's no bad taste or, or bad feelings about my past love of Hong Kong action films. And I was genuinely shattered when Bruce Lee died. I was surprised and stunned. And I remember going to see Enter the Dragon again, because I'd already seen it, and I didn't usually repeat films. 
I was lucky at that stage and the cinemas were A, cheap, and B, churning through all sorts of B and C grade products, so I didn't need to go and see a movie repeatedly. But I did go to see End of the Dragon twice to honour Bruce Lee in, in the kind of way we honour people we never really met. Um, I, I wanted to see the movie again and I didn't have the option of rewinding or streaming the thing again or anything like that. Um, our ability to re-watch movies was crazily constrained in those days by technology and the ways of the world as they were. But um, I'm glad I got a copy of... Um, Enter the Dragon, I've got a copy of The Big Boss, I've got a copy of Way of the Dragon, and I've got a copy of Fist of Fury. Now, the interesting thing about Fist of Fury is part of it's the Bruce Lee wonderfulness, the Bruce Lee action stuff, but the other part is that he goes along and kills off the Japanese martial arts guys and hangs them up from lampposts. So even though there's a romantic scene with Nora Meow's character where they're talking about their love and what they want to do and how they want to get away and build a life together, the other side of it is that this built-up crazy anger that's in Chen turns him into a serial killer where he stalks and tracks down the people who have wronged him and wronged his master because it turns out, this isn't too much of a spoiler, but it turns out that they actually poisoned his Sifu and... He just goes to town on them. Here, there's a couple of bits where he's in disguise. Once he's in disguise as a telephone technician, another where he's in disguise as an old newspaper seller. And you can see Bruce Lee having a bit of fun with that. But ultimately, his character is almost a weird Hong Kong action version of the <laughs> Charles Bronson character in Death Wish. He's tracking down the bad guys and he's killing them, and he's on a rampage. And that's pretty fucked up. Uh, his character in this film is seriously, deeply, and surprisingly fucked up. And that plays out in the end. You've got the um, Chinese police chief who's trying to keep the Japanese authorities who run Shanghai at the time happy, but he's also trying to stay true to himself, and he's trying to support the um, martial arts school that uh, Bruce Lee's Chen is a part of. None of the students or teachers there know where Chen is, but his girlfriend does, of course. Well, I should say fiancé rather than girlfriend. And that police inspector, by the way, is played by Lo Wei himself, the director. He's playing Inspector Lo. And, um, yeah, that that aspect of it, that, the fact that Chen is a fucking out-of-control maniac really makes it interesting in this film. While we're cheering on Bruce Lee and cheering on his martial arts and cheering on the fact that he's fighting against racism, against people in... Um, who have crazily conquered his country, the Europeans and the Japanese as well. There's a strong streak of racial pride in this film, which is kind of understandable given their circumstances. The fact that the hero does something honourable right at the end and something stupid as well really has a cultural disconnect for me in a sense. Um, Robert Kersey, the character in Death Wish, the audience cheers along with them unashamedly. But Chen and his actions, uh, the movie does give us the fact that he's off the rails and, and fully acknowledges that. And when he does something honourable at the end, we kind of go, OK, yeah, we understand that, but he really shouldn't have done that. And the rule of law must prevail. That's part of it. It's, there's a strong sense that even though he was doing the right thing and kind of defeating murderers, in a sense, the way about he went about it, and the way he tracked them and you know, tr- 
like like prey, brought dishonour to the martial arts school and to his friends and the people he loved. So it's kind of an interesting way to end the film, and I think it works really well. Uh, what I didn't remember that part when I rewatched the movie the other day, but I found that it was a really fitting ending, but it wasn't a traditional kind of Western film ending, and that worked for me. That really did work well for me. Now, while I was actually thinking after I watched the film, wouldn't it be cool to know what Bruce Lee would have been in had he not died in 1975? Because I really think that uh, he would have been 77 this year. And I like the idea of a 77-year-old Bruce Lee still being in cinema. Maybe in another universe that happened. But I find it the, you know, that kind of speculation really interesting. Which roles would he have taken? Would Jackie Chan have been as prominent in his career? as um, he became because there was that enormous vacuum that Bruce Lee left behind him? Um, would he have become a teacher of martial arts? Would martial arts have been a bigger part of the world? Because he was um, a teacher to a various number of very influential people, James Coburn. He actually taught Roman Polanski martial arts at one stage, which is kind of weird, um, a weird juxtaposition. We can do that speculation about a number of people who died early. In fact, Jack Dan, an Australian writer, is a very nice guy as well, wrote a novel about an alternate universe where James Dean didn't die in the ni- 1955 and lived for another decade and a half. And that's a really interesting book. And it's called, I'm looking up on my shelf to find it, The Rebel by Jack Dan. You may be able to find a copy of a D-A-N-N. Uh, Jack's a lovely guy, and I really enjoyed that novel. It's got some really weird casting choices in the Hollywood where James Dean remains alive for a decade and a half. But, uh, yeah, uh, just to kind of end this off, revisiting Bruce Lee movies is something I like to do now and then. I don't think I'll watch End of the Dragon again for a while because I've seen it so many times. But I might do Way of the Dragon just to watch him kick Chuck Norris's ass again because that never gets old. Anyway, I'm going to end it there with the podcast. As I said, I'm going to play the Donna Summer disco tune from the deep at the end of the podcast. But in the meantime, look after yourselves. Watch good movies, watch bad movies, just watch some movies. Don't get sucked into playing console games for a week straight. Um, Even though it is a lot of fun, it'll suck up all of your important movie viewing time, believe me. And um, as I said, look after yourselves. Thank you again to the Patreon supporters. Still haven't got the credits done correctly. I'm putting that on my list for this week, and we'll see whether it actually happens because I'm the major procrastinator of the world. Um, As I said, I'll be back again next week with a um, Martian Driving podcast, uh, two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast where I'm doing another martial arts film as well, along with something else. So in the meantime, take care of yourselves. If you're anywhere at all that's affected by floods, rain, tempests, earthquakes, plagues of locusts, boils, pretty much anything that was in the Ten Commandments, look after yourselves. Take care, and I hope everything goes well. Uh, I did hear from our good podcast friend Davey Mack that he and his family and friends are okay after the floods in Texas. So that's good news, Uh, and, and thanks for getting back to me on that one, Dave. When you're all set up again, we're definitely doing that cowboy um, movie episode with Gunfight at the OK Corral together via the magic of Skype. So take care of yourselves, guys. I'll play the credits for the podcast as you want. Thank you to the two Kerrys for their wonderful support and to all of the other Patreon supporters. 
then I will play the Donna Summer track from the soundtrack of The Deep. Catch you guys later. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers. And here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller. Sarah, our special effects technician. Ian, our caterer. Grant, our technicolor consultant. Claire, our script doctor. Gary, our prop master. Morris, our music director. Jan, our dialect coach. Armin, our key grip. Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler. Elaine, our scientific advisor. Julia, our casting director. Chris, our camera operator. Christopher, our gaffer. Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress. Tansy, the foley artist. Alyssa, the location scout. Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, our donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve, our script doctor. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Kerry, our second script doctor. Richard, our set photographer. And our extras, Kathleen, Mark and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects. And Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers. And you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema.